Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this series, and we release every Wednesday. Um, There'll be a new episode coming out. I just really want to appreciate and just thank you guys for joining me. Um, Hopefully, this you've already listened to the intro. You know where we're headed today. But if you're listening to this out of order a little bit, we are going to start at the beginning because it's a very good place to start, you know? Sometimes you got to get those old movie quotes in there, right? Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 because um, a lot of times, you know, even for a new believer, where do we start? We start at the beginning of a book. And, and so um, I want you to understand where you're at when you open up scripture. So that's our purpose for doing a full Old Testament survey. Uh, The other part of it is you're going to get some gems along the way, but I'm really hoping that I will be able to connect for you the Old Testament with the New Testament because I want you to understand that these two things are dovetailed together. And actually, if if you want to look at it this way, the New Testament grows out of the Old Testament. The New Testament is a new covenant And that new covenant only makes sense if you understand the old covenant um, and what the Jewish faith is defined with. And that old covenant is is the covenant that's made with Abraham. Um, And so we're going to start at the beginning and give some of that foundational piece. I want you to really think of it like the book of Genesis really is the foundation of uh, the Jewish faith. It's the foundation of uh, the Christian faith. Now, if we're looking at the Old Testament and we're going to start kind of um, almost sectioning them in chunks, okay, what we're going to do is with the first five books, we're going to pull those a little bit separate and we're going to look at those. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books right here are the ones that are written by Moses. In one of those past episodes, I talked about the historical evidence that supports this. Some of the things that we talked about in that episode is that these five books were very clearly written by a very highly educated individual. Well, what do we know about Moses? He was educated in the royal palaces of of, uh, Egypt. He was was, uh, educated as the the son of a princess, essentially, um, in the house of in the house of Egypt, and so he got royal education equivalent to what a pharaoh would get. Um, that would have been his training, which you have to look at and just concede to God's amazing preparation. Because where does he go to intercede for his people? He goes to the very courts of Pharaoh. He would have known all of the protocols, all of everything. Um, And so, you know, God's preparation, he always prepares in advance for the road that he calls us to. Um, That was a cute little tidbit. Hold on to that one. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis, um, but I want you to understand that Genesis is part of those first five books, okay? And those books are called the Torah, and they're also called the Pentateuch. Um, And so for the Jewish faith, when we get to the New Testament, you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees only wanted to acknowledge the Pentateuch. They did not want to acknowledge the prophets and the other writings of the Old Testament. So that was the disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's important to hold on to and to remember when we get to 
um, the first four books of the New Testament, which are the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. Okay, so um, starting in Genesis, we are just going to go chapter by chapter, and I'm doing that specifically for the book of Genesis. I'm not sure if I'll do that for Exodus. I'll probably do these three chapters and um, and section off chapters, but Genesis moves through so much history that it's really important to kind of break it down, honestly, chapter by chapter. So in the first chapter of Genesis, what we have is we have creation. We have the story of how God begins. Um, And what we have in the opening scene is we have God existing. And we have him existing in plural form. We see him say, let us make man in in our image. Um, And so we know also from other places in scripture that Jesus was God and he was with God. That comes out of the book of John. And so we know that in those places that, um, oh, how does it say it? He he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then when you bounce down to verse 14 of John chapter 1, you see that the the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that that refers to Jesus. And so basically what it's saying is that Jesus was back at creation. So we absolutely know that when we see God in Genesis 1, it is the triune God. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a unit. Um, that God has always existed in that three personhood. And that's a concept that when we get to some of those deep key theological pieces, I'm going to do an entire series, I think, on the Trinity um, and try to explain the unexplainable. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Anyway, all right, so let's get started in Genesis. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is that creation story. Um, and there's two views to the creation story. Actually, there's three. Um, One view is you can take God at his word and you can do a literal understanding of that. Um, And for for supports of that, I'm going to refer you to to the um, answers in Genesis um, and and the Creation Museum in Kentucky um, because they have done tons of work on that. And one thing I will tell you is how you take Genesis determines how you're going to take the rest of the word of God. Um, because if you're going to start going, well, I don't want to believe that, you've already started it down a dangerous road, in my opinion. You are starting down the road of, I'm going to take this, but not that, this, but not that. And when we do that with the Word of God, we have taken it from being the first priority in our life to a compromising priority that I get to decide when it's my authority and when it isn't. Um, And I know that's a hard stand, um, and I know that there's a lot of the body of Christ that is not going to be with me on that. But what I'm challenging you guys with from here is that how you assign authority to the word of God really depends on how much it shapes you. And it depends on how much of a priority you make it in your life. And it, it also determines ultimately whether you live a life consistent with biblical principles or you leave yourself open to be vulnerable to some of the shifts that are happening within the church. I really feel like it comes down to how much you decide you're going to take God at his word. And so I'm kind of all uh, for the the straight up, it took him six days and he rested on the seventh because God's able to do that. That's the thing we need to understand. I mean, if you just looked at your toe from a scientific perspective, just a toe, you'd understand that It is so complicated and so amazing, and the amount of systems at work 
to make that live, function, and breathe. And we would think the toe does nothing. But the toe is an essential part of the body. The body cannot walk upright without it. And so understanding that something that looks insignificant is so complicated. If, you're, if, if you don't see God as big enough to make it, like the Genesis account says, you've already got God small. And so my challenge for you is let God be God. Let him be big. Let this be truth. Um, and just give yourself, you know, okay, well, let me consider it. Let me challenge myself with Genesis 1. What if it's true? And Answers in Genesis has taken this to heart and said, okay, well, if this is true, there should be evidence everywhere. And they've gathered the evidence. Um, and so we've gone through actually some of that. So my encouragement for you would be, Go check out what they've come up with. It's their heart's passion. Um, so that would be kind of where I want to start, and I guess that's kind of starting on a bang. Now, the other two views that people take of this first chapter um, is that some will say that, well, a day isn't really a day, and maybe it's a 1,000 years, okay? And so maybe the time frames aren't right on. That's what one school of thought does. Um, the third school of thought goes, mm, yeah, I think that's just a story that was made up, and I think evolution's probably more accurate and true or whatever. Those are kind of your three pools, generally speaking, within the body of Christ. And I think for the most part, those match the authority and probably how intensely they hold to a Christian worldview. Um, I would say... Uh, Roughly, generally speaking, so not 100% across the board, but I think there's a correlation uh, with how much you live out a Christian worldview, probably with those three beliefs on, on Genesis chapter 1. Okay, moving on, we get to Genesis chapter 2, which puts us at another thing that culturally is very much being debated today, and that is the institution of marriage. Um, and I had just a couple key thoughts here, and I fall definitely at the more conservative end of things. So, you know, I'll be honest with you guys about that and just very open. Um, but here's here's where I'm always going to draw the line. I am going to show respect no matter where uh, someone on the other end of a conversation is going to be. You are not going to hear me hating on anybody. You're not going to hear me loving. But I'm going to come back to the Word of God, and I'm going to challenge every single person I come into to allow God's Word to be the authority that you set your beliefs off of. Um, and so when we come to Genesis chapter 2, the one thing I want you guys to notice is that chapter 2 verse 24 says, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God created this. It is his to define. If the God of the universe, the God of all creation, designed a husband and a wife to be joined together and become one flesh. He's created the institute of marriage and he's defined it. What I want you guys to hear from me is that man merely recognized that union by law. But God was the one who instituted it prior to the fall of mankind. While they were still in the garden, before sin entered the world, before there was sexual, disgusting, diversion, perversion, anything in existence, in the perfect state, this is what God created and designed. And so from my stance as a believer, I go, well, if God designed it before man recognized it, I'm going to let God define it. Um, and so for me, 
I, I recognize that this world does not love Jesus. So, of course, they are not going to be on board 100% with what God instituted back in the garden. Our government may diverge and go a different direction. I have the choice to decide where I'm going to stand on this as a believer and as the church We've defined our lives as following God and his word. So that means that we need to stand with this, with God's definition of what the institution of marriage looks like. Okay, so there's going to be some disagreement with that. There's all kinds of things going on. I welcome a discussion of that at some point. Um, you're welcome to send me an email um, if, if my stance on things bothers you. I'm honestly trying to just do a very respectful um just this is what God says about things. So um, any case, so moving on, we got chapter three, um, and that is where we see sin enter. Um, we've got the fall of man and the promise of a redeemer. And the big picture that I did at the end of the last series was a big picture of the Old Testament's meta narrative, the major story of how the Old and the New Testament fit together. This is one of those key chapters where all of a sudden the game changes, sin enters, um, man, with or without realizing it, all of a sudden takes God off of the throne of his life, and he chooses his own voice and the voice of Satan. Um, he chooses to doubt. He chooses to do his own thing. Um, and what is instituted in that moment, I think, is summed up in, in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, where God comes looking for Adam and Eve who are hiding and Adam's response to God saying, where are you uh, and why did you hide is in uh, chapter 3, verse 10. I hid at the sound of you in the garden, says Adam. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And I think what we see in that, in that verse right there is a picture of a horrible legacy that has been passed down throughout mankind from that moment on. And that is the fact that we understand um, our sin and we get afraid because of our sin and our vulnerability and our nakedness. So we hide. And it's kind of this idea of I'm ashamed and I hide. And that pattern right there follows us all the way down through history. And you, you're going to see it in your life. I see it in mine. Um, whenever I'm ashamed, I hide. Um, and so the interesting thing is we have a beautiful picture in chapter 3 of God seeking us out in our hiding. And that is the story of how salvation comes to each and every one of us. It comes to us when we're hiding. It comes to us when we are far away from God, not necessarily seeking. It is him moving in our lives to, make, to cause us to seek his face. Um, okay, so moving on, we get chapter four. Um, what happens at the end of chapter three is they are kicked out of the perfect, perfect Garden of Eden um, into the outer wilderness. Uh, God places an angel at the doorway so nobody can go back in. Um, and he's honestly protecting because if mankind eats of the tree of eternal life, they're stuck in the state that they're in. Um, there can be no redemption from that point. So that's the major reason that God kicks him out of the garden, because he, he wants to protect and be able to provide redemption. Um, and so, okay, so fast forward, we get all of these consequences of sin. When Adam was created, he was placed in the garden and given his purpose. After the fall, his 
garden, so to speak, outside of the perfect garden, is now cursed, and his purpose is cursed. And so his job of tilling the soil all of a sudden now has all of these curses on it. For a woman, she's created and introduced to a man and to the primary relationship of her life. And so for her, instead of purpose, it's relationship. Um, And so what do we see with her? Well, she's cursed in her relationship with Adam, but also in childbirth. Um, And so those are the two major areas that she's cursed in. Now, embedded in that is the seed, which is really awesome because it's not the seed of Adam. It's the seed of Eve, um, which is Jesus. It's It's the first pointing that we have of God's plan of redemption. Um, and so in that, he talks about how the seed of the woman um, will, will he'll, Satan will bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman will bruise his head, which is a killing blow. Um, and so we have a picture there of redemption happening. Now, the other thing that happens in the garden um, on their way out is God clothes them. And he doesn't use leaves or anything like that. He uses the skin of an animal. Now, we're not told this specifically, but it kind of alludes to the fact that God killed those animals to cover them, which is an image of what he's going to do to his own son, the seed of the woman that will come, um, is that his own son will be shed to cover their sin. His blood will cover their sin. Um, And so what I want you to see is even in Genesis, there's echoes of the cross and the sacrifice on the cross um, in the very beginning chapters. Okay, so we move on to chapter four. um, And I honestly find chapter four absolutely fascinating. Um, The death of Cain and Abel. Um, What we see with the story of Cain um, is God institutes sacrifices. Um, and so Abel comes with a, a lamb and sacrifices a lamb, and it's pleasing to God. And along comes Cain, and he, he's more of a farmer, and so he brings his first fruits. You know, he brings some fruits, and God doesn't accept his sacrifice. And we don't, it's, it's not super clear why, but it, God must have been pretty clear of what he wanted for a sacrifice. Um, and so verse uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we pick up with the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? Um, and then a little bit, just a little bit further down, he says, "Beware, sin is crouching at the door, and it is its desire is for you. You must master it." Right after that moment, Cain calls his brother into a field and kills him. It's meditated. He knew what he was going to do. That f- plan was formulating in his head when God comes to him in his mercy and gives him a chance to choose something different. Had he looked at God at that point and said, help me, God would have helped. God would have met him there. God was moving to speak into his world. Cain wasn't seeking God out at that point. That was God stepping into Cain at a moment to give him a choice for mercy and grace. I I love that picture because one, we see what sin does when uh, sometimes anger and attitude open the door for sin. And we can see that all the way back in Genesis chapter four. Okay. Um, So that was kind of a cool tidbit for that chapter. Uh, Let's move on to chapter five. What we have in chapter five is actually the first genealogy um, 
and it goes from Ab- uh, Adam all the way down to Noah. Um, and this is kind of interesting because they lived really long periods of time. Um, and so what you have is you have Methuselah, who is the longest recorded life in the Bible, um, and he lived 969 years old. And interestingly enough, his name means when he dies, the flood comes. So at his birth... His name literally was a proclamation for everybody living that God was going to send a flood. Now, sometimes that might surprise you. It did me. But honestly, like, God wasn't surprised he was going to send a flood. He didn't all of a sudden get to the end of a certain chapter in Genesis and decide to throw the flood in there. What we understand from, uh, from New Testament passages is that the cross was already planned out before the foundation of the world was laid. So we have to understand that God is always previous. Um, And for those of you who don't know, and most of you probably wouldn't, that is actually a quote from Tozer, A.W. Tozer, who quotes another theologian when he um, is kind of talking about God. And he says that God is always previous. And the idea is that wherever I'm headed, God has already been. He's putting things in in play. He's orchestrating things. He's organizing things. Um, And so, okay, another thing I want to mention from just chapter five in the genealogy um, is that uh, all of Cain's descendants die in the flood. All of Adam's descendants other than Noah, perish in a flood that are living. Um, And so it's important to remember that because Adam didn't do a good job of passing on to his sons and to their descendants um, how he walked with God in the garden. He didn't do a good job. That was not passed on well at all. Now, there are key remnants in the generations that do have a walk with God. Um, And so you have the example of Enoch. And Enoch is a very uh, unique character for the Bible. You're going to find him in chapter 5. And it says that Enoch walked with God and then was not, for God took him. And so the idea is just that Enoch walked, like he was in deep friendship with God. And all of a sudden, one day, he just ceased to exist. Um, And we're not given the story, but we do know that there is another Old Testament prophet that kind of has this happen, and there's a chariot that comes down and takes him to heaven. So we don't know exactly what happened with this. But the interesting thing that I want to point out to you is that Adam and Enoch— Um, Adam would have died and Enoch would have been taken in Lamech's lifetime. Now, why is that important? Okay. Well, Lamech was Noah's father. Noah's father. Okay. And Noah's father would have been 56 when Adam died. Now, why is that important to Old Testament? Well, who walked in the garden? Adam did. Who named creation? Adam did. So, first-hand eyewitness account would have been alive for Noah's father until he was 56. So it is tangibly 100% possible that Lamech could have gone and sat at Adam's feet and listened to stories. So when we're talking the preservation of the Old Testament, you have to remember that Noah's father would have had a first-hand account from Adam. 
because of the way the lifespans fall. Now, after the flood, they go from 969 years down to 100 and some, (laughs) you know, several hundred years, but it's a significant drop um, from that point on. And so, um, but the interesting thing is that although Noah wouldn't have been alive to hear firsthand accounts of Adam, he would have grown up hearing about this Enoch because for somebody to just all of a sudden be not be here and no, being known to walk with God, it makes sense that when we see Noah in chapter 6 and God says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God, we understand how that would have been possible. Because his father would have grown up with all of those stories and could have gotten firsthand accounts from all of them about what happened in the very Garden of Eden. Okay, Um, and so the next thing we find in chapter 6 is actually the corruption of mankind. And this is where God looks around and just shakes his head because there's just so much dissipation and just sinfulness. and, And mankind has just disintegrated to the point of it disgusts him um and it actually says that he re- he he's sorry that he made man he repents that he made man now keep in mind god is always previous he knew <laughs> he knew and when methuselah is named who is the longest you know 969 years old and if you do the math he literally dies the year the flood happens And so obviously we're not clear as to whether he died in the flood, but his name would suggest that he died right before as almost a sign. Um, And so, okay, so what we have in chapter 6 is we have this account of Noah, God commissioning Noah to build an ark. Um, This is the first biblical covenant. Like if we're looking at the covenants, what a covenant is is God making a promise to mankind. Um, and so what we see in, in chapter 6, verse 18, is the Noah, Noahic, Noahic, yeah, I think that's how they say it, Noahic covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. And then he, God goes on to explain what that's going to entail. Um, chapter 7, we have the account of the flood. Um, and the thing I want to point out to you is that Noah builds that ark for 100 years with a culture that could have joined him, but didn't. Um, With men that saw him doing it, knew why, um, because Noah walked with God. So you have to to see him as almost, um, he's trying to tell people what's coming. So he would have been a prophet somewhat in his own right, perhaps, Um, but he would have been telling people to try to save. I mean, this was his family. These were his parents, his grandparents, his, you know, these would have been his uncles and aunts and sisters and brothers and, you know, all of that. So you have to understand that Noah would have been trying to save his family more than just his sons and their wives. Um, But it took him a hundred years to build the ark. So literally he lives like 500 years before, has his his three sons, and for a hundred years between the time God tells him to build the boat and he's in the ark, the doors are closed, and the rain starts. It has never rained on the earth up to that point is another thing I want you guys to understand. And so at that point, God shifts something, and he opens the windows of heaven. Um, up to that point, there was it, it, things were watered differently. 
But God opens the heavens, and all of a sudden water starts falling. Number one, these people would have never seen that before. Number two, they've watched Noah build this boat and talk about a flood for a ye- for hundred years. Not only that, 869 years before Noah starts building this hundred-year-old project in an ark, Methuselah is named. And he's named a name which literally means when he dies, the flood will come. That's about a thousand years before the actual flood. So to look at this and understand that God gave them warning signs, that they knew what was coming, and the last minute sign was this water falling from heaven. They should have been running to the boat. You know what I mean? Because they were seeing weird things. Moses, or not Moses, Noah had been talking about it for 100 years as he builds this monstrosity and gathers all of these crazy things. This should have been so obvious for them. Um, But it wasn't. In the end, the only ones that end up in the boat are Noah and his wife and three sons and their wives. It's literally eight people. That's it. Out of how many that could have been saved that aren't by their choice. Okay, so we get to chapter 8, and we have the flood subsiding. Um, An interesting, cute little question here. Who closes the ark's door? You know, you'll have to go see. Um, But it actually says that God closes the door of the ark. Um, Okay, so (laughs) we've made it to the flood, and I I think we're probably at my 40-minute thing, which I kind of target for a podcast. So I'm going to leave you hanging with um, God lets the waters subside and the, the ark rests and Noah emerges from the ark. Um, and so we're going to pick up in chapter 9, which I was hoping to get further than that for this first podcast. But that's okay, um, because we're going to talk more about this first covenant and the rainbow that is the sign for this covenant. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to OpenTheWordPodcast at gmail.com. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from modern farmhouse to transitional design. Then, meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day. 
by gathering to relax in our courtyard, you will leave feeling connected and refreshed.